Hello, and welcome to the XXLA Architects Podcast, a show featuring Los Angeles's leading women in architecture. I'm your host, Audrey Sato, and today's guest is Karin Liljegren, founder and principal of Om Givening, an architecture and interior design firm whose practice is rooted in a love for the extraordinary urban fabric of downtown Los Angeles. Karin is an architect and interior designer, and she founded Om Givening in 2009, just as the recession was threatening to halt downtown's resurgence. She and her staff have worked on almost 350 projects in Los Angeles, seeking to restore downtown's purpose while helping to define its new identity. I'm constantly impressed by Karin's go-getter attitude and her entrepreneurial talents which you'll hear more about in this episode as she talks about the guiding principles behind her collaborative practice and how she continues to evolve it beyond architecture, incorporating interiors, product design, and even real estate development. Without further ado, here's our conversation recorded virtually earlier this month. I've heard you say before that you were actually a modernist before you became obsessed with adaptive reuse. Um, Because working on historic buildings and in that space is such a specific niche, I was really curious to hear more about how it was that you became an expert in this. Yeah. Um, So I would say, and I would say I'm probably still a modernist, but I didn't have any interest in historic buildings or old buildings before. And um, so after I finished grad school, I was working at um, KFA Architects. And we, in 1999, the city of Los Angeles um, had just implemented a new ordinance called the Adaptive Reuse Ordinance. And that encouraged um, revitalization of a bunch of old, empty, historic high rises in our downtown, which was kind of like our original downtown. I mean, it's really crazy because all these buildings were literally sitting empty from the second floor up um, for a lot of them de- decades. So I just remember going for the first job walk and we were doing our as-builds back when we actually still measured the buildings on our own with like a tape measure. <laughs> oh my God, I'm showing my age, huh? Um, and you just get, you know, captivated by these buildings. They're just so cool. And these old spaces and raw spaces and like remnants of, you know, really decorative historic stuff. And then other areas that are just exposed down to the bones of the concrete and steel. And and then, you know, coming up with the ideas of how, you know, you inhabit them and how you change them and being a part of this whole thing. So I think that was it. It was just, it was really fun and exciting to be a part of that um, from designing, you know, the the spaces, but as well as like really being a part of a major revitalization of, of a whole part of town. So that was really cool. Yeah. It sounds more like uh, because the adaptive reuse ordinance was so new too, it was kind of like everyone was learning at the same time, maybe. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know what I was doing and no one else knew what they were doing. Even the people who really knew what they were doing, didn't know anything. So we were kind of on the, <laughs> a level playing field. But I think the other thing is that you never know in life, sometimes these things just pop up and take you in a totally different direction. And I think it, that was one of those things. Yeah. No, I could see actually, because um, I think I felt the same way as you as 
in school, like the modern architecture stuff was just so appealing. I just didn't have not the appreciation I should have for historic buildings. And Mm -hmm. they're just beautiful. And I don't think that they're actually um, easily separated, actually. I think that you can be modern with a historic space. Definitely. Definitely. At least the design schools that I went to, you know, it was very um, design focused, theoretical focused and form based. Right. So, so much of the exploration um, was really about the form. And I I was even back then very much more interested in space. A lot of times I'd be like carving into things, (laughs) Mm -hmm. carving into the land or whatever. Um, so looking back now, I'm like, oh, yeah, I was I, I was never interested in the form. And I always had a hard time with the form, actually. that It didn't interest me as much. But I was always interested in design. And um, I, I but I often felt like any kind of existing building, and I've heard this from so many people, too, that like existing buildings or historic buildings or anything is just not seen as a design opportunity or it's, yeah. And I mean, I think, I hope that that changes because I think especially our need to reuse buildings is so important. Right. We have to change that perspective and um, to start looking at how reusing buildings is also a really fun design opportunity. And again, I think schools change, so I don't want to like say specifically my experience at UCLA, but my experience at UCLA at that time it was, you know, really kind of pushing your brain and your mind in these, like, as far as it could possibly go and really big ideas and how to express those things. Um, and that is, you know, I would say on that kind of like massive, <laughs> big scale, that maybe that's harder to do in existing building. But in my undergrad was more, I think, community building and, and like how you experience a building and what it what it feels like or how it interacts with other buildings or people within the building, you know, that type of education, I think certainly it would be perfect with existing buildings, right? Cause you already have kind of a parameter and then um, there's a lot more, I think detail thinking and analysis of, mm-hmm. of space and how we use it. And, and, but it should go to the level too of like how it feels. And that those are all design problems, right? Right. And it's actually a lot harder of a design problem, I think, to reuse a space than to build a new building, like mm-hmm. to, to have that ba- that freedom of the blank slate. Oh, I think yeah. There's so much more constrictions in reusing and having to figure out like really understanding what the structure is doing and how you have to bring that up to code and how do you do that in a way that's compatible. I mean, I just think that that's incredible. Yeah. I've been in a couple of the buildings that your firm was working on. I mean, I have to say like the other huge benefit of of reusing these buildings is that they're crafted in such a beautiful way that nobody could do now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think where it's even gone for me now um, branching out much more than just historic buildings, but just existing buildings. Because especially from the sustainability, well, really from the sustainability perspective, reusing buildings is one of the most important things we can do as architects. Um, but like, I think, what are the statistics? Uh, I think it's building like a super energy efficient new construction building. It still takes something like 30 to 80 years to mm-hmm. offset 
the carbon footprint um, that the reuse of an existing building would be. I might right. be a little off with that stat, but I know it's in the ballpark. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like we're, we're doing a lot of things to try to reuse, you know, what we call background buildings too. So the ones that aren't historic, but are just kind of even floppy old buildings, you know, how can we reuse them? That's great. Yeah. I, I'm 100% on board with that. So I know you started Om Giving in 2009, which was just like a huge defining moment and pivot point for a lot of people in our industry during that last recession. Um, I am just so amazed that you were able to do that. Uh, I'm curious to hear about that experience and what your goals were both um, professionally and personally at that time. Yeah. So let's see. Um, so I was at KFA for 15 years and I was kind of on the partner track and I loved working there and they were so amazing. I mean, they really, uh, my bosses were, they, they really allowed me to grow and basically do what I needed to do. Like they, they saw that I had potential and they kind of let me run with it kind of thing. So it was a, an amazing opportunity. So I never thought I was going to leave. And I think, again, it was just like a, a few series of events that occurred um, that maybe just rethink certain things. And then uh, I do tend to be a little spontaneous <laughs> or um, and a risk taker. So I, I think I wasn't totally afraid to just go, yeah, I think I'm just going to go for it. There's like there was I was trying to listen to my gut. My gut was saying, I think I need to do something different. Um so I did. At the same time, I was also had just got a divorce, and you know, was now a single parent half time and stuff like that. So there's a lot of life change happening all at the same time. And the recession was really bad. I think that was the other thing is I, it, it the recession let me look at my career at KFA in a different way. It was like, oh, you know, all of a sudden the work stopped, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Um, so, but at the same time, I had already established. Um, a huge amount of contacts and a, and a whole network of people um, through all the work that I had done. You know, that was like, f uh, I think 12 or 15 historic high rises I had converted in those 10 years in downtown in Hollywood. So I kind of knew everybody downtown and now I was living downtown and, you know, so it was developers, it was city agency people, it was random people on the street or people in my building, you know, so there was a, a huge network. And then since I was more the main person on doing the projects um, at KFA, most of the developers knew me, right? right. So I was like their kind of go-to person. So when everybody stopped work, it was uh, a great time to do a lot of due diligence. So a lot of the developers would say, oh, hey, Karin, can you do this for free? You know, just kind of like see what we could do with this building. So I was able to use my skills. Um, so I wouldn't say I necessarily planned for all of that to happen. <laughs> I think it was more that I literally just took a leap of faith and uh, figured I figured out as I went along. I, I did have, um, when I left, I did have some very specific, uh, I don't even know if they were goals, but they were kind of like checkpoints. Um, so I knew I wanted to focus on revitalizing downtown. 
um, and, and buildings. And I knew I wanted to really merge architecture and interior design because I was feeling like they were really getting separated in our industry, uh, like two different camps that weren't connecting or talking. And so I wanted a firm that could do both, but was also really collaborative, could work with other and you know other companies uh, really flu- fluidly, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I really wanted a firm that helped other people grow their skills and their passions to not just put somebody in a desk and like, here, this is what you have to do. Or this is what we think you should do, but really help people as best you can. Obviously, it's all our own story, right? But um, to help help give them the tools or help guide them to, to really align those things. And then um, I really wanted to, to work on, so that's three things. The fourth thing was um, to, to try to create a structure that was more about collaboration, um, but working, like really kind of just saying, the collaboration has to be with people that I like mm-hmm. and people that are good at what they do. Cause those are important things. Like if you have one, or, but not the other, it doesn't really work so well. So I just kept moving forward every day and saying those four things to myself, like, okay, if I'm making a choice or I'm talking to this person or I'm saying yes or no to something, does it hit those four things? You know, and sometimes maybe it was like three out of the four or whatever, that was fine. But I just knew those were the important things. I didn't have a business plan. I didn't know where I was going. But knowing what was important to me helped me have checks and balances along the way. Yeah. I mean, so I've heard from a friend of mine who has worked with your company a lot that your staff is just awesome to work with, just top notch. Oh, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so, you know... um, I think it's really amazing that that was one of your focuses from the very beginning is thinking about collaboration and the importance of who it is you're working with in those relationships. So I'm wondering if you can talk more about how you uh, recruit and retain your talent, because that's so important to a business. Yeah. And it's hard, especially right now, right now with the end of this pandemic, everyone's kind of rethinking their lives, right? Like, We've got a lot of, hey, I want to move to blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, I know. no. <laughs> and we'll figure out a way to make this happen. I don't know. We're, you know. Um, the recruiting part, I think um, I have a great, a great a focused group of people, like leaders in the office that do the interviewing and stuff like that. But I think... And so they, I think they're very good at communicating who we are and our culture and... Um, you know, maybe the very honest and just like straightforward with, with people, but really sharing and probably a little bit of a deeper interview experience. I, I hope at least, um, the recruiting, I always feel like the best recruiting is, um, a recommendation from, from somebody, um, any kind of like cold calling of anything just doesn't work. Right. Um, keeping folks, it's, it's hard, especially with this pandemic, because we're so disconnected, but whew, just doing the best you can to get input for everybody regularly about what they need, what their, what their goals are. You know, we have, um, um, it's like a, a mentor, advisor, manager kind of uh, person um, 
I think we're, we're in the process of redoing the system. But the idea is that you would have a person that you have multiple times a year to kind of touch base with. So it's not just a performance review, although, yes, that's a part of it. But it's also what are your goals and what's your, you know, three months, six month, five year, you know, and, you know, people can kind of lead into it the way that they need to. Um, we try to figure out how people need to um, have communication, you know, like one of those, uh, it's called DISC. It's like, you know, are, oh, you, uh-huh. are you a D or an I or, you know, like Myers-Briggs kind of thing, you know, just because sometimes we don't even know ourselves, right? But sometimes you, you do those um, analysis and it's like, Oh yeah, I do need very direct communication or I need communication to be written or I need it to be face to face, you know, and just that kind of stuff can be helpful. It's hard to manage all this though cuz it's it's a lot of um HR basically <laughs> or uh-huh. like, you know, like yeah. these intangibles um when you're running a firm, uh, especially right now, it's just so focused on, we need work, you know, we right. got to get the work and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. Anyway, those are some of the things that we do. Yeah. I mean, right now the pandemic is just like, it's such a sh- sudden shift and it's been on the one hand, really inspiring and interesting to see how resilient and adaptable we all are actually. And on the other hand, um, it's really hard. (laughs) It's really hard to go through that amount of change so quickly. And it's really hard to predict like where the future is going. So, I mean, how are you grappling with all of that? Hmm. Um, Like specifically with the office or with work or with design? Because I'd say they're all different things and sure. I'm trying to grapple with all of them at the same time. <laughs> right. I mean, there, it's almost like you have to, right? Because you're the leader. So you're, you're kind of looking at the big picture of all of these things, right? Like chasing new work. How's the work going? Like making sure the quality is still there, making sure your employees are still happy and functioning well. Uh, I don't even know how you're doing it all. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's it's very very difficult, I have to say, and um, <laughs> I mean, for yeah, because there's there's a lot of things happening at the same time. So part of it is just being organized so that you don't have things flying into your head all the time of like, oh no, did I do this or how what's happening with that? You know, so just that there's some level of organization. Um, and then trust in other people to do things. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah. And then I think communication. So even if, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking, oh, I really need to talk to someone because I feel like I don't know what's going on <laughs> over here. Um, yeah, it's, I, it's tricky. I mean, I have personal things that I do to kind of keep the sanity, which I've gotten much better at. Like, um, again, the organization you know, um, or just getting things off the plate. Um, and the office as a whole, we have a whole like new structure of, um, you know, three, uh, each quarter we have rocks, you know, or specific priorities and one person is responsible for, for each one. And, um, and then there's longer term goals. So the idea is that you're focusing more on, 
one thing at a time as opposed to a million things at once, right? Because we're already all, there's lots of stuff out there about how multitasking doesn't work, you know? Um, and I was like a huge multitasker. So trying to do one thing at a time is a big thing. Um, uh, I, I've really taken to meditation and kind of this quiet focus time in the morning to set my day right. That's mm-hmm. been huge. Um, and then just taking breaks for exercise or walking the dog. And, and I notice if I don't do that, I get all amped up and I, my brain just gets scattered. So I think a lot of it's just learning how to do that focus and be organized and calm. Yeah, that's great advice. I don't know how many people lately have been telling me that I should meditate. I recommend it. I put it off for so long. And it was almost like when people would say, oh, you should meditate. I'm like, don't tell me what to do. (laughs) (laughs) And then I just kind of did on my own and didn't tell anybody. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, I need to tell people to meditate. No, don't tell them what to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I should try it. For me, it's just really inspiring to hear about you as a single woman, as a parent, having that guts to really go and start your own company and then grow it to be such a large and impactful company in our industry. I I just think that that's pretty rare because a lot of times people start companies in pairs or um, don't make it to the level that you've made it. How do you manage all of those demands on your time and your energy? So I I think the key goes back to what we were just talking about, like those areas of focus, right? So for me, being a single parent, I had a really great relationship with my ex. It was more like we were co-parenting, but we just had different households um, after the first year or so, (laughs) like once we got through the, the drama. So you know, my, my son would be with me for like a couple of days and then he'd be with him for a couple of days and we live close by. So that just really worked well. My son was so young. I think he was like five, four, five, maybe when we divorced. So he didn't know any better. He didn't know anything else. So the back and forth was a very easy thing. And also it allowed me to have a couple of days a week where I could work really late or or go out and and network um, in the evenings. Um, And then other days where I would have shorter days, I would have a really short day, and then I would be really focused with him. And because I knew that it wasn't this day in and day out kind of parenting thing, it allowed me to also really appreciate those days that I had with him and the time that I had was more sacred. So I would say that was, but I think that that model can work in any scenario, right? And especially for partners, making sure that they have that quality time, the two of them, making sure that they each have time with the child and that they all have time together as a family and they have time independently to do their work, right? Just really kind of making it a conscious choice, even if you have to schedule it. Like, like I personally need to schedule it. It's on the calendar. <laughs> The other thing I think is being a new parent, because I'm forgetting about my son's now 18, right? So he's so great. He's so easy to have around. But uh, the other thing is reducing your expectations when you have really little kids, because it does take an enormous amount of time. So just like 
oh, I was going to have this done and this done and, and be this person by this age and, you know, have this number of projects. Like, just give yourself a break. Take it down a notch. Know that if you're raising a young child, it is really important. It takes a lot of time and it's not going to be that way forever. You know, so it's okay if your career just slows down a little bit. You know, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it doesn't look like your career slowed down. <laughs> well, but also it took a lot of toll on me, honestly. Sure. You know, I mean, huge yeah. amount of toll. Yeah. Yeah. No, I could I could definitely see that because I think a lot of times people um, really glorify growth and they don't see the cost that comes with yeah. growth periods, right? Yeah. yeah, it was insanely hard. It's still really hard, but it's not hard like it used to be. Oh, that's good. Yeah. You know, I think that you have such an entrepreneurial mind. Um, it's kind of rare in architecture, actually, like funnily enough. Um, but I've seen you talk about your interstellar map <laughs> and it's sort of mind blowing. Like, can you talk more about that? Yeah, it's it kind of scares people. I <laughs> It kind of scares me too, but um, I think it goes back to, again, some of those early things that were important to me, like in terms of the collaboration and integrating architecture and interiors and all that kind of stuff. And then trying to help people with, you know, their skills and their passions. But I, I you know, as a 53 year old now, I'm, I'm very kind of anti like a lot of these mega companies or, like an empire or architecture firms, um, you know, me going through the years that, you know, tended to be very ego or kind of uh, competitive with each other. And I don't know, I just would like to break down a lot of that and create a different model, a different kind of structure. So I see things more as like little smaller uh, companies or little smaller entities that can work together. Um, uh, through Omgivning, I see Omgivning as the start for me where I personally can start other little companies because of my skills and passions. So for example, I'm really interested in development and, um, I can't, you know, it, it just doesn't really work with doing it within Omgivning. So what my idea is that it kind of starts through Omgivning as a, incubator kind of, and then it pops out and it becomes its own company, right? Um, so we've started our first development project, um, trying to buy a building to move our office in, but it's also going to be kind of a hybrid of not co-working and not private offices, but kind of a hybrid model. And um, so we've started a development committee within our office and we've been meeting for about the last two years and trying to learn what it's like to be architect as developer and doing these seminars together and having sessions. And now we're like doing performas and, you know, we're all relatively clueless and we're going along, <laughs> but now we get to have our first project. And, and so I'm trying to figure out like, how do I get the folks that are, that are putting in the hours and the, basically the sweat equity into this to be part owners, because I really want to create that integration of ownership into these other companies that spawn off. Right. So, yeah, so that was, that's kind of like, that's one. Um, I started a light fixture company that was a little bit more of a separate thing uh, that I was doing with a, with another guy. 
And then one of our awesome designers in the office kind of was doing a lot of the design. So now I'm trying to figure out the whole like royalties and like one partner's leaving and how does another partner come in and you know, who, you know, just again, creating another idea. But so for example, with that one as a product, um, I just, I've always been so interested in light fixtures and, um, it just seems to make sense that we do a lot of big projects. So why shouldn't we be just designing and manufacturing our own light fixtures that we can sell to our clients at a cheaper cost because there's no reps or middlemen or anything. You can kind of knock out some stuff. So I've learned a lot of things about that was very ambitious. It's actually, we've got the website, we've got products, we're ready to go. But now I just literally don't have time to put into it. <laughs> so I need to figure out how to get that going again. But um, yes, yeah, things like that, you know, so then there's like a friend who is also an architect, and she started a tile company, you know, because that's her passion. And then, you know, how can we collaborate with her, you know, or maybe we can create a design through her tile company that's, you know, just finding ways for, again, for us all to be, have a little bit more ownership or involvement in things that we love, ways to create um, revenue for architects, because we historically are never, ever valued or paid what we really deserve um, based right. on our creative problem solving skills. Um, so yeah, so that's a little bit, I don't know, does that de describe the interstellar map? Because I don't have a visual of it because it is a little <laughs> scary. There's just like bubbles and connections all over the place and lines. <laughs> um, it is more scary actually seeing the visual than hearing you talk about it, I think. Like when okay. you talk about it, it's like, oh yeah, that that kind of, I mean, it's still very ambitious. Like, hey, I just, you know, decided to make my own lights. And so I'm starting a lighting company and getting them manufactured. It's like, wow. <laughs> it's still, you know, mind blowing. But um, when you talk about it, it makes, it it's sort of makes more sense. <laughs> it's still like, I wouldn't know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we didn't. <laughs> but again, if you, then you connect with somebody who does. Right. right. Like, I have an idea. I have a passion and a skill and I have a, I have a way to connect it to something else to make money or for it to function. Right. right. So like then finding the right partner. So I think, I think that's the hardest thing too, is, is finding these other people. But, but I think this is so much more about the structure of younger people and what they're going to want in the future. They're not going to want to work for like a big mega company. I mean, yeah, maybe if you work for Google and that's, your thing or whatever. But I think as, especially as architects and designers, we're multifaceted and it's, a, it's okay to be in different things uh, as a part of different things. Yeah, no, it, it's actually, um, I had done a weekend sort of, um, certificate, <laughs> I don't know, a, a pilot seminar at Woodbury, um, where, there was an architect developer who was talking about how they were doing so many projects for like single family residential projects for developers that they started doing um, a few projects a year where they were doing their sweat equity for a piece of the profit. And I thought that was so cool. And so learning about how to do that and how to potentially get a lot more of a fee but, you know, you have to be okay with kind of deferring that and the risk mm -hmm. involved in um, not making your money right off the bat. And, and what happens if this 
project doesn't pan out like all of, you know, all of that. So I thought, I thought that was really interesting. And it sounds like, um, you know, more and more people are thinking that way as architects because our, yeah, our fees aren't, aren't even as much as the realtor is going to make selling it. (laughs) It's totally crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's really exciting. Um, I can't wait to see how that turns out. Um, your first development project. It's, and again, it's, it's very difficult because we don't have a lot of money, right? But I do have, but now some of our developer friends that we work for, they're like, oh, you guys have some good ideas, you know, kind of like, let's, yeah, let's do a project together. So that also helps us get in that door, in the door, you know, in the development side. That's amazing. Um, so you had mentioned earlier a couple of times how, your firm blends architecture and interiors in um, a different way than than a lot of other firms. And I'm really curious to hear about, like, you know, what is the typical way that architecture and interiors are delivered and how does your process um, work differently? Mm, okay. So it really depends on what type of project you're talking about. Like if it's office or restaurant or multifamily, they're all a little different, but I'm going to be more a little, a little more general. A lot of times um, they're always, well, they're usually separate companies, right? And usually the architect is like moving down the path and we're designing stuff. And then pretty far to way too late in the game, then the owner's like, oh, now we're going to bring an interior designer. And what is a quote interior design? There's so, I mean, that means so many different things. Um, sometimes it is more of a uh, selection of furniture and some finishes um, and procuring that furniture. And then sometimes it's, you know, how space planning and articulating walls or like much more interior architecture. So it's all is all very confusing, and and most clients, um, especially the ones that are not very savvy, don't really understand all the nuances, right? So number one is that there's a collaborative and connected tissue between all of those things, because you can't start thinking about what the interiors are going to be in CDs. You have to that's that should absolutely be a part of schematics. So we always look at. Um, you know, uh, spa- you know, the programming, the space planning, the mood, the vibe, how it's going to feel um, right off the bat. So that that mood and that vibe. And by the way, omgivning is a Swedish word and it means the way space feels. So that was kind of my goal was to come up with a word that means that and there's no English word <laughs> that means that. <laughs> so, um, so, but a lot of, we're, we're also very flexible because sometimes we do the interior design work with other architects. Sometimes um, we do the architecture with other interior designers. So, and, and, and I think that that flexibility really helps to, to learn more. You know, you can learn a lot more if you're working with, with different people in different ways, as long as everyone's on the same page that we're doing this project together. We're not in two separate camps. Uh, making sure that the owner, you know, is is understanding that because a lot of owners just still think, oh, there's the architecture camp, and then the interiors is a totally separate thing. Sometimes they won't even think that we should be talking, and I'm like, what? Is this, you know, 
Yeah. So the end result is always, and any project is so much better when all of that is integrated. I just, I can't even understand it being so separated. Yeah, no, I, it must be nice from either the outside architect or the outside interior designer when you are working with another firm that you understand both sides. Like that makes you a better collaborator. Yeah, yeah I think it does. Yeah, and there's certainly people in our office that are more on one side or more on the other side. And we're still trying to figure all that out. Like before we had a very clear like interiors department and then even in our office things started to get too separated you know because mm. it was like oh well you're on the interior side so you're supposed to do that and then the interiors people are like well no why you can't pick a plumbing fixture come on you know <laughs> so uh we're we're re we're rethinking how it works in our office too to try to make it more integrated yeah and was your training in both no, my train. Okay, so, <laughs> so I was told that I should be an interior designer and not an architect so many times when I was a kid and even in college and I think even once in grad school. Oh, you should be an interior designer, not an architect. So it made me go, screw you. I'm going to become an architect. And um, <laughs> so I, I obviously already always had an interest in interiors. Um, but I always loved architecture too. So I, I had a very clear architecture background. When I was at KFA, those latter years, I was trying to start an interiors department or try to do more interiors on our projects. Um, they were multifamily, so that kind of made sense. It was easier to kind of start to blend the two. Mm -hmm. um, and I was able to do that. But um, yeah, that's... that's Why it. do you think people said that to you? Was it just that you were a woman or is yes, it that... No. No, it was absolutely because I was a woman. Yeah. Jeez. No, I had the first the first uh, place I worked at 17 was a structural engineer's firm. And, um, you know, I told him I was going to be applying to architecture school. And he just said flat out to me, you're a female. You should be an interior designer, not an architect. Like, huh. just flat out. <laughs> no bones <laughs> about it. <laughs> and, again, I'm just glad I had a personality that was like, screw you, you know, yeah. but you know, a lot of people would be, Oh, you really think so? Oh, right. Maybe, you know, don't listen. Don't listen to people like that. You gotta go with your gut. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> when you went to architecture school, was it like, you know, how it is now where it's mostly balanced or were you one of few women? Yeah, no, it was pretty balanced. Um, I think both undergrad and grad school. So that was mm -hmm. from 86 to 94. Those were the, yeah, it was pretty balanced. It was more about when we got out. Um, I think we lost a lot of women um, mm -hmm. or, they, yeah, they chose other career paths. Yeah. Is that, so is um, giving like, um, you know, is it pretty balanced, male and yeah. female? <laughs> yeah. So I think our latest stats, uh, so 100% women owned, um, I think we're 56% women leaders um, and about 50% overall staff are women. And I think we have 59% people of color. So That's I think we wow. got some good stats. That's great. Um, have you felt like you needed to focus on making that a priority or did it just kind of come naturally? The women part? No, I think, especially with la last year and black lives matter, I think we're trying to make that a priority. Um, it's hard though, because there there aren't many African American or Black um, architects to hire, and there's a lot of people going after them right now. Yeah, um, I bet. I, I think we're trying to focus 
more on mentorship for younger kids um, and neighborhoods that are probably not getting exposure to some of these other career paths. So I think we're trying to focus more on that. How are you doing? um, Teaming up with various, you know, like we're working with NOMA um, and we've signed up for the DEI challenge. And um, let's see, I think I'm about to have a mentor. I think she's in college though. And uh, yeah, so we're, we're trying to team up with like, cause you have to kind of have partners to be able to go into the schools or maybe someone that's already set up a, a system that we can kind mm-hmm. of tap into. That's great. Yeah. I feel like it's really important. And I've definitely heard that from a lot of firms that they're, you know, really wanting to boost their um, diversity, but I, you know, sometimes it's not, Sometimes it's not being done in the right way. Like um, there's that assumption like, well, if we just offer these people a job, they'll want to come. And it's like, well, why? Why would they want to come to work with you uh, when you've made no other effort to show them that? And it's just trying to, you know, do your your demographic (laughs) stat. Okay, now we've clicked this box now. Yeah. Yeah. Like, do they have other leaders to look up to? Like, is the, are there programs that are going to support them? Like, how, what are you doing to make it a place that they want to be at? Not just, you know, trying to boost your staff. I don't know. It's very right. interesting to see the different approaches. Yeah. And again, I think that's, I mean, again, it's hard, especially with the pandemic and we're all disconnected, but it's really important to us that um, younger staff can have a voice you know, and, and can really connect. I think that's the main thing. Cause I, I, at least for me, when I was younger and I was a female in meetings with all men, a lot of times I didn't even really notice it. I don't know whether that was just me or that was just the way it is. So you didn't really think about it, but I didn't really have, um, you know, many female mentors, but there would be sometimes just a human being, a person, who you connect with. Right. And so I think that that connection and that um, really wanting to share and take the time and all that kind of stuff goes a really long way, even if they don't have the same skin color or the same genetic makeup or whatever, you know? Yeah, no, I think very similarly, um, I grew up in a place where I wasn't, I didn't identify as a minority because I wasn't, I was surrounded by people who looked like me. So it was kind of shocking to um, realize that I was being perceived that way at a certain Mm. age. Mm. Um, And then similarly, like working in architecture, I didn't notice. I, I, you know, it was just like very strange to me looking back that I didn't notice. (laughs) 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 Um, (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I'm glad I noticed. I'm glad that I, um, and being proactive in in figuring this out and trying to be an advocate for women and for minorities. So I, I get where you're coming from with that in terms of, yeah, you just kind of connect with people. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate the honest advice you've given me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having, you know, I have to say like talking like this is also really helpful for me. When you verbalize things, you learn stuff at the same time, or you cement things that maybe you were thinking, just having to articulate things. Yeah, it's really helpful for me too. So thank you. (laughs) Thanks. No, I just think you're like a wonder woman. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. I don't necessarily feel like a Wonder Woman on a daily basis, but I appreciate it. (laughs) That's our show. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Karin Lodrigren of Omgivning. I am always so awestruck after hearing her speak. You can find out more about Karin and Omgivning at omgivning.com. That's O-M-G-I-V-N-I-N-G. I'm your host, Audrey Sato, and you can find me at xx-la.com or at xxlapodcast on social media. Thanks for listening.